This week on Living the Call, Deacon Charlie talks with Leah Jacobson, a wife, mother, and author, as well as the founder and CEO of The Guiding Star Project. The Guiding Star Project is a nationwide family of care centers that empower women with a whole life approach to healthcare that honors their bodies and minds. Leah holds a master's degree in health and wellness and is an international board certified lactation consultant. She is also an international speaker and author of the books Holistic Feminism, Healing the Identity Crisis Caused by the Women's Movement, and The Happy Girl's Guide to Being Whole. In this episode, Deacon and Leah discuss holistic feminism and how Leah's work challenges the norms of women's health care and includes a growing movement of diverse women all calling for a culture that sees women's natural bodies as inherently good. You know, your body is not a mistake. You are good. You are not broken. The role of medicine is to fight disease. It's not to fight nature. This is Living the Call. Leah Jacobson. Yes. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Deacon Charlie. This is great to finally. be here. Yeah, finally. You're, you're welcome. Are you are you uh, home, Minnesota? I am. Yeah. No, I'm up in the Duluth Diocese. I'm in the central, north central Minnesota. So out in a rural area. Um, we love it out here. It's great. Yeah. And I work from home. Beautiful. So you're in the chaos of my home. Well, I'm in Los Angeles and in my home studio. So we have that in common. But I'd love to visit. I've been to Minnesota a bunch of times, but normally just kind of, you know, Minneapolis, St. Paul kind of stuff. And although last time I went, I did get a chance to go uh, take a drive south. Like I landed in Minneapolis and then drove to uh, Iowa to do a, a studio recording in Clear Lake. And it's, um, I drove by some of, you know, the the country of Minnesota. And I always like to stop at like little, you know, yeah. diners and stuff and meet yeah. people. It's fun. Yeah. Southern Minnesota is beautiful. All the hills and kind of the bluffs. And then you come up to Northern Minnesota and it's just lakes everywhere. Woods and lakes. Um, yeah. And mosquitoes. It's it's beautiful. Right. <laughs> we love it here. Well, it is a land of a thousand lakes, right? I mean, that's one of the designations or did I get the state wrong on that one? Uh, it's actually, it's actually 10,000 10, lakes. 10,000 lakes. Uh, it's land of 10,000 lakes, but they underreported. Interestingly enough, there's actually a lot more than that. So <laughs> Interesting. Well, very good fishing, no doubt. So Leah, I've been really looking forward to our conversation. There's a, there's so many things that I want to kind of you know, get into, and you know, the kind of format of this show is whatever the Holy Spirit wants, but there's something that you said or wrote, and I forget which one it was. I don't even think it was on our call. Maybe it was just based on my research, but that I just love as a jumping off point, because I think it is like super critical to talk about this kind of stuff right now. And that is a notion where, that you said, your body is not broken. And the, the, mm, my yeah. initial thought on this, just to kind of give you a sense of where I was coming from it, from it was, and this may, may feel a little unrelated, but, um, my wife is 49 years old. I'm probably going to get something thrown at me for, for saying that, but she's 49 and she <laughs> you just disclosed she, that. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Well, it's going to, it's, it's about to get worse because I'm about to disclose something else, but she's, she's fine with it. She talks about this in public, <laughs> but, but she is entering, um, the premenopausal stage. Okay. And there's all these yep. changes that are happening with her. And she and I were having a conversation and she said, you know, I'd love to talk to, um, other women who are going through this. And there's tons of like different, you know, support groups and <clears throat> Facebook groups and all that kind of stuff. But from her research, it's most important to speak with people who are in your family who have the same, you know, DNA and, you know, yes. genealogy and all that stuff. Absolutely. And here's the kicker, Leah. 
in her family, none of the women, her mother, her aunts, her cousins that are the same age, um, have this because they've had hysterectomies. Yes. Very, very common. Yeah. We're losing an entire generation of medical information being passed on to women because there's so much alteration. Yeah. Exactly. And so her thought was like, you know, this, this idea of a hysterectomy, which in some cases, and I'm not suggesting it's the same. And, you know, for the record, I don't know what I'm talking about here. So just to be clear, but what I've anecdotally picked up on is that it is a super common, very often recommended procedure for a lot of women and, you know, could it fall into this mm -hmm. category of just this sort of automatic that doctors believe needs to be done at a certain moment? And yes, we're missing all the data, but we're also missing something, you know, more supernatural, which is like, there's a reason this is happening and your body's not broken. So let's not go to the scalpel as the first solve. Yeah, I think this has become very much part of the women's healthcare field, you know, and that's the the work that I do every single day in the nonprofit I run and in my own um, educational background as a, a women's healthcare, you know, kind of expert and lactation expert is that we're implanting very early in women's minds, you know, nine, 10, 11 years old, that there's something inherently wrong with how our body operates and that, you know, we need devices, pills, artificial hormones, surgeries uh, to correct our body. And so this starts really early and it's the first time a little girl's period, you know, it's very normal for a little girl as she's starting to cycle to have one cycle and then it might be a year before her hormones, you know, correct and get her ready to have another cycle. And we immediately jump to this place of, well, that's irregular. That's not right. Let's, mm. let's just regulate it. Let's take it over. Let's control it. Let's make it work because somehow you don't work right now. And so this is being subconsciously implanted in our daughter's minds at an incredibly young age. And it's being, um, you know, reaffirmed to her multiple times throughout her reproductive years. You know, when you get when you get pregnant and you're struggling to, you know, go through labor and it's augmented unnaturally and it's pushed along and you're just helped, you know, your body's just not quite doing it right. So we're just going to help you along. Uh, and then breastfeeding comes along and well, it just seems like maybe your body's not quite doing it. So let's help you. And we just have this tendency to take over when it comes to women's bodies because we don't trust them. And I, I don't think this is a problem only in women's healthcare. I think this is insidious across all humanity, that there's something, an identity attack, an identity attack of, you know, God didn't really intend right. to make you that way. Something's a little wrong here. You're a little broken. Mm. Um, it, it's, a, it's a sad time. I mean, it really, I, I feel like the lies of the enemy have been delivered to us, you know, unfortunately, many times in the privacy of an exam room, yeah. you know, and it's just this insidious attack of you're not good enough. You can't trust the creator. Mm. Now, when God works through us, he works through our collaboration with him, right? St. Paul says he's, he wants to be a co-worker with God and the enemy also has co-workers, right? But I'm, I'm wondering in your experience, the motivation of the human actors in the dynamic that you just described. So, why, if you were to look at that pie chart of the sure. reasons why we advance the you're broken kind of thesis, like what portion of that is just ignorance? What portion is commercialization of a product that I otherwise wouldn't be able to sell to you? Like, how does that, what are the motivations behind that? Because at the same time that that's the advice happening in the private examination, you also have this massive movement of like, 
everything should be natural and wellness and organic foods and, you know, locally sourced, uh, you know, turnips and like all this other stuff. So they seem in a way kind of incomprehensible to hold both of those views. But what are the motivators for the human actors involved here? Yeah. And I like to take a very optimistic view of humanity. I I am perpetually just kind of assuming the best of of humanity, which maybe is not the best. um, I, I just choose to do that. Like I have to assume the best of people. And so I think the motivation for many of these, you know, misguided human workers right now, I do think that there truly is a desire to end human suffering. They Mm. see our fallen human nature and the suffering that accompanies it. And it's a burden sometimes. You know, we sometimes see the gifts from God in our fallen world as a burden. So things like fertility, which is absolutely a beautiful gift in the right, in the right context and with the right understanding can feel like a burden when you, you know, throw out the other guideposts of moral living. Mm. And so, you know, in a desire to end that suffering of, well, it's, you know, They just want pleasure. They just want, you know, to be united with whoever, you know, let's make that possible because that seems really good. Mm -hmm. It seems like an overall good and we just want to give them something pleasurable and enjoyable, but it's very short sighted, you know, as are all things that go outside of the natural law and the natural order in that it often ignores and downplays the consequences of, you know, going around that natural law, going around that God is very ordered. And he has created a universe that is very predictable. Um, But the human players, you know, we're not God. We can't see what's down the line because of this decision. And so as much as, you know, there's conspiracy theorists in the women's health world that are like big pharma, you know, is trying to take over. This is all financially driven. It's all very malicious. It's all very insidious. I think there's an element to that. Absolutely. And I think it's, you know, it's good to be aware that there are people that are absolutely okay, you know, capitalizing on women's bodies and our ignorance and making money off of it. But I often think that the average human actor is trying to end human suffering. Mm. And we just don't have an understanding of the redemptive nature of human suffering, the beauty of it, like, like just all of it. We just are very short sighted. We're very human. (laughs) I I mean, I, I think that's like uh, two weeks worth of podcasts you just unfurled right there because I, I think you nailed it. I, I really do think it's a, a, it's an orientation born out of a, a sense of compassion that's sort of um, channeled improperly. Um, I definitely see this, you know, across the board, by the way, in, in many areas beyond kind of medical uh, spheres, but this notion of you know, people shouldn't suffer and <clears throat> we should end suffering. And on some levels, a, a huge part of that is exactly right. Like we're called to serve our brothers and sisters and to be there and to be compassionate and to accompany them and to walk with them and to do all that stuff. But another part of it is what what can suffering or dysfunction or those things be in support of? How can they be transformative? How can they be redemptive? And that concept is like, it's like a different chip inside different heads, right? It's like you either kind of have that chip or you don't Mm -hmm. have that chip. And if you're missing it, you can see the kind of thousand tributaries that could kind of manifest themselves immediately following it because you're trying to do something good. So clearly somebody's not having the right cycle. Like let's put them on some pill that makes the cycle normal, normal. But you know, we Mm -hmm. don't think beyond that. Yeah. We're human. We, and, and honestly in the field that I work in women's healthcare, um, it's just incredibly arrogant to think that we know much of anything given how short 
live, you know, it's very, it's, it's a very new and developing field, mm. like education on women's fertility and ovulation. Like there are things that we still know nothing about. Like we actually aren't like, this is fascinating to me. We actually don't know what causes labor to begin. Like the wow. fact that w- women have been giving babies, you know, having babies for millennia and we cannot say definitively that we understand the mechanism of how labor begins. Mm. I, I mean, it just shows how much is not understood yet in the field of women's health care. So things like polycystic ovarian disease and, you know, endometriosis and like these are very new problems yet in terms of research, in terms of our understanding and our treatment of them. Um, and yet we act with such an arrogance just mm. this, well, this is what's best for women's bodies. But we know so little about how they actually function. It's just kind of a really interesting um, realization to, to look at. Women have been treated like little men. Mm. You know, we've said, well, their bodies are just a little smaller. They're just not quite the same <laughs> as men, but generally they work the same as men. But that's not true yeah. at all. <laughs> that's absolutely not true. Um, but we're most comfortable with them when they do act like men's, when they do act in this very predictable, controlled nature and the very nature of woman, it's, it's, you know, the cyclical, you know, the up and down of the hormones, the changing nature of it, like how the, the environment and the atmosphere and the influence of everything from the tidal waves to the moon phases, you know, we are incredibly in tuned with the earth. Like we are incredibly in tuned with nature. And that I think generally makes humans uncomfortable. Mm. It makes us uncomfortable to not have control over something. I'm convinced that, because the first thing I thought about was, you know, you almost should have two different branches of medicine, one for women, one for men. And somebody would say, well, we have gynecology. And I'm like, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about pulmonary. I'm talking Mm -hmm. about, you know, cardiovascular, you know, uh, uh, neurology for women. Like, that's not the way that we approach it. But the more I think about it too, I wonder if all of this is just not a reflection, right? Uh, if, if the reflection of male and female is not just across everything, I mean, we see it in a natural order a lot with, you know, organisms and animal life and all that kind of stuff, but we don't think about it in concepts like, you know, physics or, you know, geology or whatever, but it wouldn't surprise me at all is once we get to heaven, we find out it's like, oh, you know, the way you were looking at this all in kind of one big pile, there was actually two things. So it was like male physics and female physics because the idea of feminine and masculine mm-hmm. is deeply tied to the person, to the, to the reality of, you know, God's plan for all of creation. And so it should, it would follow to me logically that it'd be reflected in all of creation. It, absolutely. I mean, just the place that we're at when we look at, you know, it's a pretty crazy cultural crossroads that we're at. Yep. We are medicine and culture right now are intersecting with one another because the implications of the cultural push right now for, um, you know, gender identity and these issues. I mean, we're looking at medical charts that now have, you know, female prostate exams as a possibility. <laughs> you know, yeah. This is a whole new uncharted territory. I mean, we're, we're changing the very basics of, you know, the understanding of sexual dimorphism that we have reproductive systems that are not the same. I mean, that has always, you know, kind of been an understood understated, but understood (laughs) reality for humanity. And all of it at this moment in time is really, is really falling away because I feel like we have not embraced this idea that our bodies are not broken. Mm. Our bodies come with purpose. They come pre-programmed to operate a certain way. And we are our body. And that sort of, um, 
you know, heresy, that separation of the mind and the body and the spirit that we somehow can have a, you know, a female body and a male mind, you know, that, that's a deep heresy. Mm. Um, and, and the, you know, the church has not, um, has not ever changed its teaching on it, but yet it has in some ways, I feel in this last decade through the sexual revolution, been ill-equipped to speak forcefully into the cultural void right now of just truth on this issue. We have not said this enough that you are your body. You mm. know, your body is not a mistake. You are good. You are not broken. Like, you know, the the role of medicine is to fight disease. It, it's not to fight nature. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a very, and in a hard, in a fallen world though, our nature is fallen. So disease is a reality of living in the fall. Sure. So it, it can become very difficult. And disease has an origin and it also has, uh, you know, a redemptive quality or can have that if we choose to look at it that way. I think about this, this void though, that you just described, because I think it's really interesting. One of the things that I find most interesting about you, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, was from our last conversation is that the, the reason that you recognize this gap and the kind of the, this cultural void that you talk about is because you've traveled it like literally yourself, right? I mean, you've, you know, there's this thing called code switching, right? Which we, we, we touched on a little bit in, in certain circles. That means that if I'm Hispanic or if I'm black, but I'm in a circle with, you know, only white people, I might minimize some attributes and increase some other ones. But there's, there's a lot of like code switching you've had to live in to experience that cultural void in a variety of different settings, right? Like, so you've seen it kind of firsthand, uh, you know, in, in college and being a young activist and, you know, even the story that you told me about, you know, being pregnant on campus and like what all of that, what all of the interactions that you got as a result of that are kind of like living a little bit of that cultural <laughs> Uh, you know, void that exists, a lot of people don't get to walk through those things like you have. Well, and honestly, it's, it's disorienting because, you know, when you, right now, it's fascinating. And the reason we got to talk about that is because, you know, I, I walk in kind of feminist circles and I walk in women's healthcare circles. And in those circles, there's almost a, um, I found myself recently having to kind of, um, <laughs> I guess, like, play my cards a little bit of like, no, that I do have some like background in this because there's an assumption almost of, well, you're a white woman yeah. and in the feminist healthcare world, you're highly educated. You know, you have a master's degree, you're a specialist in this, like you don't understand the experience of other people. And so I've actually had to kind of go back and say, you know, actually I grew up in pretty extreme poverty. I, I grew up on a rural dairy farm. Um, we were incredibly poor. Um, and having to kind of just, you know, assert a little bit that I've, I have walked this path and it's something I wasn't expecting to have to do, but I'm finding that our current culture, there is a bit of a, a, a canceling element yeah. of you don't understand me. So therefore you can't speak to my experience. And it's been very harmful, especially for, you know, women in poverty and women in, in some of these, um, you know, more minority situations, because, basically we're not allowed to speak to the experience of any other woman except for ourselves. And I think what we've lost there is we've lost this sense of united humanity in some way that I can understand something that you are experiencing because I physically have also gone through that experience. You know, mm. you're talking about menopause at the beginning with, with your wife and you know, a woman in a third world country is going to experience menopause just like a woman in a Manhattan high rise. You know, there are some physical things that, that cross these barriers that they, 
you know, they transcend our differences because we are united with the same kind of physical programming as a woman or as a man. There's things we can understand about each other, but I've just found this kind of code switching, this intersectionality, this intersectional feminism is really the rise of the movement that's happening right now. And what it is actually doing is canceling people based upon differences Mm. and ignoring the things that we share in common with one another. It's saying, well, you can't possibly speak to my experience because you're not me. And yes, that's true. But there are things that we live on the same planet. We breathe the same air. We drink the same water. There are things that we have an understanding of innately, even if we are very different classes. And 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 really, when I have to kind of throw out my my poverty card, I guess, or my right. like yeah. credential of low, I get it. It's me saying, you know, I, I'm still me. Sure. Like I'm still the child, you know, that had to wear hand-me-down snow pants from my older cousin because I didn't have any money yeah. <laughs> as I am now. You know, it's um, the human experience is um, it's it's understandable from many places and viewpoints. And that's really it's very countercultural right now to what's happening it is. with the feminist movement, with the women's movement. Um, we're trying to very much individualize instead of unite. And I think that, you know, when we do the intersectional thing and when we kind of balkanize and everybody goes into their own corner, obviously it has a lot of very practical implications because we're just not talking, but it also, you know, damages those, you know, what you described, the sort of sense of connection of the things that we do share. Right. And I think you, you talked about it as the kind of like unsuppressed female, um, you know, body or, or, or femininity. Well, that is something that you share with women from all walks of life and all nationalities Mm -hmm. and cultures. And yet, if we do the intersectional thing, well, that no longer is kind of a point of, of connection. It's not, it's not like an avenue we can travel then because, you know, you're in your camp and yeah. I'm in the other camp. And, and, and maybe the greater irony is that half of those camps are presuppositions. Like people might look at you and go, oh, you are white. You are educated. Therefore, you are this, even without having a conversation with you. Yes, 100%. That's happening to me. And it's been very surprising, actually. I I never thought that I would have to, you know, really fight for my voice to be heard. But I'm finding that mm. it's, it's very interesting right now, just because there's certain sort of titles that come with, you know, oh, well, you seem to work in pro-life women's healthcare. That means you don't have a voice in this. And so, well, actually... <laughs> I should have a voice in this. Like I've done a lot of work with women experiencing unplanned pregnancies. I've worked in with these people. I, I am well equipped to speak into this reality, but you know, somehow that position of pro-life disqualifies me as a medical professional. If you were to peg the resistance on both sides of that sort of continuum, like, do you think you get more, I don't know if you call it pushback, maybe, maybe surprise or concern or whatever word you want to use, but is it more from, you know, other maybe the, the, the pro-life kind of cohort who's, who's make some assumptions about you and maybe the, where you come from and, and, Mm -hmm. and, and all that, or, or is it, or is it more on the, what do you mean you're a, a, you know, a, a, an expert in these areas, but you're also Catholic and pro-life, like, like where, where do you, where do you, cause you're kind of in the middle of both of those things. I wonder if you can. Yeah, no, I, I actually, I definitely get letters from both sides of the, <laughs> of, of the aisle, you know, both of them saying you're not, you don't represent me. And I'm like, okay, I guess I, I guess I don't represent anybody. Um, which makes me feel like I'm probably in the right area because both sure. sides of the extreme seem to be responding <laughs> negatively. Um, I would say that, um, 
it's the extremes that respond. Mm. You know, it's the extreme pro-life people um, or the extreme people that, you know, they get very upset about any sort of um, partnership with people across the aisle. Because I'm, I've been committed to that since day one. You know, as I when I worked as a campus minister um, at the University of Minnesota Duluth, I approached the Women's Resource and Action Center, which is incredibly pro-choice, which is incredibly liberal. And, um, you know, I have my baby on campus and I'm trying to breastfeed and I'm saying, there's no place to nurse babies here. Mm. And this is the early 2000s. So this was kind of pre the, you know, lactation movement, you know, the free the nipple movement. But I was just approaching them as a woman and saying, you know, if you really care about women and feminist issues, you should help me get lactation rooms on campus. And I was the campus minister, the Catholic campus minister. Mm. And they partnered with me on that project. And we were able to get lactation spaces and diaper decks, you know, on a public university campus. And I think that's for the benefit of all women. That wasn't just for Catholic women or that wasn't just for pro-choice women. That just benefited all women. And there, there are these opportunities to partner with people on the other side of the aisle. The extremists way far out there, that's going to be more difficult but that's not the majority of either side. Mm. We each have our extremists. You know, I spoke at a rally a couple of weeks ago in El Paso or well, actually Las Cruces, New Mexico. We're opening up a new facility there. And that was the extremists of mm. the other side. You know, they're holding signs and screaming at me as I'm speaking and, you know, yelling horrible things like, you know, I hope you get raped and, mm. you know, you should die. Your children deserve a better mother. But most people on the other side of the aisle that just disagree with my stance would never say that. Yeah. And I know that because I've interacted with them enough. But yet you do see those extremists. And I think it's important for us not to miscategorize the other side. It's important for us to really listen to them and say, what are the issues that you and I see eye to eye on? And let's start there. Because we can improve the circumstances, you know, if we work together in some way. Um, I'm in no way ever going to partner and say, yeah, I'm on board with what you're doing, Planned Parenthood. Sure. Absolutely not. That would never, ever happen. Um, but it's important that not everybody is, you know, financially benefiting off of, you know, women's pain and suffering. There are people that are trying um, really hard that maybe just are a little misguided and need need you to come alongside them and, and open their eyes to what what can be done. You know, that idea of coming alongside people is like, I mean, that's, you know, Gospel 101, it's just that sometimes, um, you know, it's easy to forget that. I'm, I, one of the thoughts that came to my head just as you were talking about was, um, you know, one of the purported stories the, of Mother Teresa's time in Calcutta was she took a donation or a land grant. I forget exactly what it was, but it was basically from an, an unreputable benefactor, right? And it was like a ton of pushback. It's like, you know, sure. do you know where this money came from or do you know where this piece of land came from and what they were doing with it? And, you know, her whole thought was, you know, yeah, but— like, what are we going to do with it? And can it best serve mm -hmm. our mission? And can it even help the person who is this unreputable, you know, benefactor to maybe by virtue of this gift, which comes from a noble place? I mean, even if it's, even if he did bad stuff, right? Like he wants to give me some land for my, you know, home, a homeless and street outreach, then is there not a way to baptize that kind of interaction? And doesn't it help other people? And obviously you need the benefit of discernment to be able to walk through this. But I find that we oftentimes... Yeah kind of rule things out of hand. You know what I mean? It's like, well, I would never, mm -hmm. I would never do this or I would never do that. And, you know, that maybe that is what you, what you describe as the kind of the extreme uh, side of the equation, because those people holding signs, maybe if you did walk up to them with a smile on your face and said, Hey, let's talk, they'd probably punch you. I don't know. Maybe they would. So, but, but most people, which is why it is important to kind of assume positive intent, right? Most people 
are significantly more reasonable, significantly more open to hearing, you know, different perspectives. It's just that we don't have a lot of practice in today's world doing that. Yeah, no, absolutely agree. That Mother Teresa instance that you were talking about, actually, she's that um, she's been like my mentor, my spiritual mentor all the way through all of this, because I've exactly that. Like when you're starting and founding, you know, an order or an organization or a ministry like the work that I do, there are moments where you just you look at how well-funded the other side is. You look at, you know, the opposition, you look at state funding. I mean, that center that I mentioned in Las Cruces that we're opening, we just found out, you know, this last week that the governor of New Mexico is allocating $10 million for an abortion clinic to be built across from where our center is going wow. to be located to basically compete with us. Like we are now, we are now competing with the state of New Mexico mm. and taxpayer funded. It's an executive order, $10 million is going into the opposite, you know, worldview. And in a moment like that, like it's really easy to despair. Um, and you look at someone like Mother Teresa and you're like, okay, how can I get creative here? How can I <laughs> see if there's other state funding that I am eligible for? So, you know, the state of New Mexico is fighting against us. Well, let's look <clears throat> at their Well Woman Care Acts. Let's look at the state funding and we're going to dip into the exact same pocket if we can. You know, like you have to think that way, like, you got to find the resources wherever they are to really, truly serve the women. Um, It can be incredibly disheartening though. And it can just feel like, you know, David and Goliath and you got no rocks. (laughs) Like, what am I going to do here? Well, I mean, that right there, I should give us some comfort too, right? Because I mean, the small over the big and the last over the first and all of that, that's, you know, that's straight from the gospel as well, but it can be super daunting. I mean, I don't know what Mother Teresa would do in that scenario. Something tells me that she might even, I don't know, do like a, some kind of crazy care basket, not saying welcome to the neighborhood in that sense, but like saying, hey, <laughs> if you ever want to talk, I'm here. You know, I'm not your enemy. Like yep. something like that, because that would yep. be very disarming. I'm sure that those people, when they come and they show up for work, they're going to be like loaded for bear. You know what I mean? They're going to be like, oh my gosh, these people are going to come yep. over here with their rosaries and it's going to be hell and we got to just, you know, get our yep. armor going. So some kind of disarming strategy maybe would be her, her approach. Yeah. And that's exactly what we're going to do. We're going to just say, you know what, we offer different services than you offer. And we think that you might have women that want to use our services. And so we're going to just, you know, this, this is what we do. And we're hoping you'll refer the women that want our services to us because we're in a, we're in a different business. You know, even though we both say women's healthcare, uh, we define it just a little bit differently. So we'd love to see anybody that wants something different. How how do we, how do we, how do we solve the different term, the different definitions though? Because I mean, the point you made earlier is like a really important one, right? The, The stuff that's actually being taught Uh, that's making it into medical journals, Mm -hmm. it's making it into policy positions of organizations that were, you know, purportedly to do X. And now it's like, what does that have to do with X? Um, Like that's happening, right? So it's like the wiring is getting put in. Yeah. And it's like this really messed up wiring. Like what can be done about, about that? Well, I think it goes back to a little bit what I was saying earlier about what we don't know yet about women's bodies. And so this field of women's healthcare is, rapidly evolving and in in no way should be considered, you know, final, like abortion has been considered women's health care, you know, for 50 years. Yeah. Uh, Contraception has been considered, you know, a basis of women's health care for 70 years, you know, and these are things that we are at a moment in time where the research and everything is actually on our side to say, this really isn't healthy. There's a lot of negative outcomes. And at 
this it's culturally just this amazing moment of women on the other side are waking up to that. You know, yeah. they are very different politically, <clears throat> morally. Um, I mean, there's a new documentary that came out from Ricky Lake and Abby Epstein. Ricky Lake put out wow. a documentary called The Business of Birth Control. The Business of Birth Control. And this documentary is a really hard look at what are the side effects of this and why aren't we talking about them? How many women have died, you know, from um, a pulmonary embolism or a stroke because they were on birth control and that was the only indicator that would have caused this. You know, they had no other health um, concerns. And so we're looking at it very pragmatically. Um, It's no longer such a morally charged issue. It's becoming more of just a wait, what don't we understand about this? And should we be researching it? And so it is that call, that push to just uncover truth. What is the truth of how women's bodies work? What is the truth of what is healthy for us, you know, physically? And how does that interact with our emotions and our spiritual health? Because Mm. a whole healthy being is integrated, you know, and even if we can't show like the, you know, they're trying very hard to show, you know, the link between breast cancer and birth control and trying to show the physical ramifications that are hurting women. And, th- and there are some links that, you know, look promising, but there's also, you know, the psychological and emotional links that come along with it, where there's research that shows that when you're on birth control, you choose a different mate. It affects how wow. you think about the opposite sex. It, it affects your emotions. It makes you feel different than when you're not on birth control. And so reintegrating the human person as this well-balanced combination of a mind, a body, and a spirit is so critical to the definitions of health. What does it mean to be healthy? Because um, is it healthy to remove a part of your body because your mind is at odds with it. Bingo. No, that is not an integrated person. That is not health. Yeah. Yeah. But it's like so automatic in, 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 in some circles to kind of think that way. It just is what it's like an appendix. It's like an appendix. You know, it's like, we just, we don't know what it does, but when it blows up, we just take it out. Like, you know, there's, there's this like really, you know, there's really quick. I've always wondered what's an appendix for. I can't seem to find out, you know, um, but apparently it's bad because it's got to get That's removed. That's a good one. You'll have to ask. Um, I think it's also a really cool insight. Um, what you said is a kind of a starting point to having these discussions is to remind people how new this stuff is, right? How little we know. Because is. that is something that I think people yeah. respond to positively. I mean, because there's a lot of areas that we're like still building social media and like, you know, aerospace and like, hey, this stuff is like developing. So like, don't lay such firm ground when we can, we have to bust up the sidewalk mm-hmm. in six months because we thought it was going in the right direction when it wasn't. I think the part of it though, yeah, that's really hard is when on top of the dynamic, you've got this chilling effect where people don't feel they can share those things. Because, I mean, a lot of that is what happened, irrespective of how anybody feels about the uh, the COVID issue, what I found particularly chilling, and I talked a lot about it on this show and my other show, which is a secular show, but I talked a lot about it was this fact that people who had experiences that were not in accord with whatever the sort of prevailing wisdom was, were really shunned. And it was very difficult for them. I ministered Absolutely. a lot of those people. And it's like when, when you have the chilling effect thing thrown on top of it and like people just feel like, oh, I guess I just can't talk about the hysterectomy because that's just what hyster- this is what we do. Yep. That's when it's like, man, downhill yep. fast. Well, and I think women, honestly, I think this is a really fascinating experience for me in, the, in watching COVID, watching sort of the silencing of these voices and people bringing their experiences in. And people were saying, you know, because it was men now, I think women have been dealing with this for 
several decades. Yeah. I think that there's almost a, almost a type of medical gaslighting that mm. happens when a woman comes in with symptoms, you know, and, and we can see that particular women in, you know, certain subgroups of women, black women, for instance, oh, yeah. it happens at a much higher rate where they're not listened to in the same way. And you leave the doctor's office feeling like, am I crazy? Yeah. Like I'm feeling this, I'm watching these symptoms, but nobody is listening and nobody seems concerned. And it's, it is this like psychological warfare that women have been experiencing for several decades, um, you know, concerning everything from our fertility to our childbearing, to our breastfeeding experiences where we just have not been listening. Uh, and so COVID, wow. when that happened and people were bringing forward experiences that were, you know, contrary to the acceptable, you know, rhetoric, I had a moment of just kind of, I sat back and popped a little popcorn and watched because I was like, I've seen this before. Yeah. I can tell you where this is going. You're now the crazy one. Yeah. It's not a good movie. I, I think gaslighting is exactly how to describe it. I remember one time with my wife, um, she was having some digestive issues and just, you know, like really bad for like weeks. And she went to the doctor and the doctor said, oh, it's this, it's that. And take this, take that. And um, we tend to be kind of more holistic in terms of our approach. So like our doctor is like an osteopath and that kind of thing. And it's like very LA, right, mm -hmm. to do that. But it also happens to coincide, I think, very well with a Catholic kind of view of anthropology. But anyway, she she went to these doctors, and it was like at the last minute where, you know, she actually was able to have this sort of longer discussion with, with one of these practitioners where it was discovered that it was actually related to her thyroid because the thyroid controls enzymes and the enzymes mm -hmm. do digestion. And like yep. they, they were trying to deal with like all this sort of symptomatic stuff, but not really looking to the source. But I remember explicitly her coming home one day and going, I think I'm crazy. I think I'm crazy because... Yes. I say this and like, yes. I swear I come out of there going like, I must be just wrong about what's happening yep. with me. And yes. that's how she felt. You know, and they talk about this, you know, like common, very, very common women's, you know, reproductive diseases such as endometriosis. You know, the average time to diagnose this can be years. It can be decades before somebody actually says, oh, that's endometriosis. Incredibly common, but yet women are just kind of continually like, oh, no, that's not really what's happening. It's this, you know, paternalism in healthcare. It's this, yeah. well, I know it's best for you. And in particular towards women's bodies, this mm. has been rampant. This has been going on for well over a century. Um, this, we know what's best for you mm. and it's to be controlled and it's to be very predictable. And we're not really comfortable with your, you know, irregular right. <laughs> body. So we're going to just, it, we're going to put it on, on, on a schedule here. Is that <laughs> mitigated in any way by when a practitioner is female herself? You know, I don't think so necessarily, because I think it's something that comes oftentimes through just the, the process of medical education mm -hmm. that there is, um, I would like to say, I would, I wish I could say that I felt like females had a greater sense of that. But to be honest, most of these women that are physicians have had to, uh, grossly alter their natural bodies in order to fit the profession. The profession is not very fertility friendly. Yeah. It's not very friendly towards motherhood. They put off their fertility for years in order to attain this this goal, and in many ways, it sort of um, desensitizes them to what to what the experience of womanhood is. Unfortunately, you know, we see some of the um, most infamous abortionists in our country are women. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I didn't know that. At least I, I I hadn't seen that, but it does. I mean, it's it's heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
I also, you know, there's something about too the the kind of like convenience sort of um, ideology. I don't know if it's convenience, but like this sense of uh, you know constantly optimizing or looking for the perfect kind of balance, which which we've been talking about. One example of that. So I I, I reverted to the faith in 2004, five, somewhere in that in that vicinity. So it's been a it's been an interesting 15 or so years for me. Born Catholic, but you know came back to the faith at that point. And my wife was not Catholic and converted in 2008. Um, but I remember when, uh, our last biological, a child was born, which was in 2004 uh, we have adopted and sponsored kids as well. But our last biological son was born in 2004 before my conversion. There was a moment where the, um, the, the doctor, female doctor to, to the point, like came and talked to us right before it was a cesarean section, uh, for a number of, of reasons, but you know, well, it, it may be some of the, what we're talking about. I don't know, but it was a C-section, and I remember she mm-hmm. said literally these words to me. She's like, well, you're not going to have any more kids, right? I mean, so while we have her open, like we're talking about like, a, I don't know, yep. like a Buick Skylark or something. While, while we have her open, yep. why don't we just go ahead and tie those tubes? Yep. Now, I've never talked about this on this yep. show, Leah, but my greatest regret, this was right before my conversion, my greatest regret is my wife asked me, what do you think? And I said, well, whatever you want, because I had no idea. I had no idea that sure. that was sure. not in accord with Catholic teaching, not in accord with anatomy, not in accord with all these different things. But I was like, yeah. And she did. Now, years later, she had that process reversed. And sadly, we, you know, we never conceived uh, after that. But it was like such a great regret. And I, it, I'm haunted by that image of like, it's like a, like a cartoon cloud above my head. Like, you know, while we have her open, may as well just tie the two. It just seems yeah. so automatic, like rolling off her tongue. Like she'd said it a million times before. Maybe she had. Well, and they do. They do. I mean, and it's one of yeah. the most vulnerable moments ever of a mm. woman's life. Childbirth is like this moment where you literally walk the door to like death and life is open and you're standing in the middle of it. Like you wow. really fear that I might die in this moment. Like this is a scary place to be for women. You are incredibly vulnerable. You lean so heavily upon the people around you and the spouse and like just for the need for that space to be safe and protected. I, I mean, I can't overstate how critical that is for a woman, you know, for her perception of herself and her identity and her transition into motherhood for birth to be protected and to be sacred Mm. and to be treated exactly like you just said, like she was almost like a car up on the blocks getting its oil changed. And well, it looks like this needs to be fixed too. (laughs) Um, And as you talk about it, as you talk about it, like I just cannot help but think, you know, she looked to you and said, well, what do you think? And at that moment, like I see Eve in the garden holding the fruit, looking at Adam. It's like a looking at Adam moment, almost like a, well, what do you think? And I blew it just like Adam. Should I do it? it? And Mm -hmm. it's like, it's that moment, you know, am I good enough? Should I do this? Um, you know, do I need to do this? And really asking for his cooperation in that moment. I mean, the subtlety of what she's asking there is, you know, the unspoken ramifications that if you don't do this, there's going to be a lot of hardship and abstaining ahead of you. Sure. <laughs> you know, like there's going to be a moment where you have to cooperate and say, you don't need to do this. I'm willing to, you know, die to myself for you, for your sake. Um, it's definitely that's a hard thing it's an at a moment and i never thought of it in that way until this moment and just like him i kind of feel like i blew it um god's made good out of it in many different ways but it's also it's been a really important inflection point in my kind of spiritual walk because i also recognize you know the importance and the responsibility that husbands have to their wives 
at that moment because you're right. It was a very nuanced, you know, question coming out of a point of like sincere trying to understand what my position was. And it could have been a very easy moment for me to say, well, of course not. Like, you know, we're, we're going to, you know, do the right thing here because I didn't know any better. Thank God I was ignorant. Uh, I didn't know any better. I, I chose to basically say nothing, but sure. it does show this great responsibility that husbands have to their wives to be, you know, that, 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 that moment or that, that, foundation of, of, of integration so that in those vulnerable moments, like we can respond in, in kind. And, and, you know, I, I sadly did not. And, um, but I, it was a wake up call to me years later of how important that is. It took us a long time. I mean, we have seven children. We have seven live children and one in heaven. Thanks be to God. And in those birthing experiences, it took us a, yeah, it took us a long time to figure out like what my husband's role was in all of that, because you get all the advice of like, well, tell her to when to push, like breathe, count, you know, do all these things. And it was always this like tense, like kind of hard moment because I was feeling, you know, not necessarily just like protected and, and like loved, you know, and when we, I think it was baby number three, where all of a sudden I read something about, you know, your job as husband is your, you know, your guardian of the home. You're also guardian of the birth space. Like it is your job to make her feel wow. just safe. Yeah. And, and it's beyond the birth space. It's, it's the, in the bedroom. It's in the, you know, in every place that she goes, like it's your job to make her just feel secure and safe. And when we understood that clearly in the process of birth, like it changed everything, you know, our next baby was born at home in the basement with a midwife in the water. And like, I just felt so safe, so mm. like cocooned and like loved and secure. And it changed my entire understanding of childbirth and motherhood and what our physical body, how a woman's body, how, as we, you know, accept in the body as it was created, um, how it spoke so deeply to my identity as a daughter of God that I've loved and I'm like secure and that I was made to do this. You know, I had a deep um, wound, a doubt that I was good mm. until that moment where I could just like, it, it, it was the most healing. Um, it was just crazy, Deacon Charlie. I can't even really explain to you, like my physical body healed deep spiritual wounds that I didn't even know I had. Wow. That's beautiful and wild in a way because, again, this picture of what the birthing experience has just come to be. It's just like, this is what you do. You get on a gurney and wheeled around hallways with people buzzing around you in every direction. <laughs> and there's a bunch of, you know, everybody's in a hazmat suit totally. and wearing plastic. And it's like, wait a minute, like, totally. time out. Did somebody, like, who says this is the way? And like, just the way you describe that opens up like whole panoramas of like opportunity to people that I guarantee you most people have never heard, um, but yet is so, makes so yeah. much sense. Yeah. I mean, I, as much as I can appreciate and, and honor the advances in healthcare that, you know, there are procedures that cesareans save lives. Like there are times when this is absolutely the right call, you know, artificial infant formula saves lives. Like absolutely. Um, in those instances, it, it's an extraordinary measure though. And yeah. for us to understand and recognize that we've normalized extraordinary measures and we've sort of said, that's the ideal when really, um, in, what that's doing is it's this deep subconscious wounding of, yeah. you know, God screwed up. Mm. Like, I can't trust him to be the loving father. Like, or, or if he is a loving father, then I'm not loved because he didn't give me the gift of, you know. So we have to really, in as 
as often as possible to instill a deep trust that God doesn't make mistakes, that Amen. he creates intentionally and on purpose and nothing that he creates is junk. Um, and so starting from that premise that I'm exactly the way he intended me to be and I'm, I'm not broken and that I'm deeply loved and that I'm going to lean into that and trust that in this moment I was made to do this. I was created to do this. Um, but we do live in a fallen world and it might not go perfectly occasionally. And to have that understanding that there is a time when a C-section is the absolute right call, but to have the education and the, you know, the understanding that now is the right call. Mm. Now is the right moment for it. This meets the parameters of irregular. Mm. This meets the parameters of disease, of complication, of, you know, God giving me um, the healthcare provider and the help that I need right now to, to be okay, that I'm still always loved and provided and cared for and seen in my moment. Amen, sister. Um, and that's unfortunately not what comes across. <laughs> no, it doesn't. It doesn't. It's beautifully said, and it's a very nice kind of landing spot for us. And the hour goes by quickly, especially when you're speaking with somebody as uh, as passionate and as um, as you know deeply connected to this as you are, um, Leah. Before we get to our our final segment together, wait, what? I wanted to give you a chance to share. I know that you know you've got a book, um, Holistic Feminism. You've got a whole you know organization you run, an apostolate, et cetera. Your husband's running for mayor. I mean, t tell folks, um, you know, <laughs> how to how to get in touch and follow what you're up to, um, and then we'll we'll round out the show with uh, wait what. Yeah, so the book is Holistic Feminism, Healing the Identity Crisis Caused by the Women's Movement. Um, and it's the first of two books that my nonprofit has published. Um, and so you can find my book and the other book, The Happy Girl's Guide to Being Whole. And these are secular books. They're written for any secular woman. But my book in particular does carry the imprimatur just because I want Catholics to have a deep sense of it's not heretical to, you know, love the natural body. It's not heretical to talk about, um, you know, fertility awareness and breastfeeding and natural childbirth. This absolutely fits with the human anthropology of how God created the body. Um, and then the second book, The Happy Girl's Guide to Being Whole, is aimed more at teenage to college age women and just hopefully trying to interrupt the um, the delivery of how healthcare usually happens to them. Like an educated woman can make different decisions. And so we're trying to educate women on the fact that your body's not broken, you've never been the problem. Your body's not the problem to the social problems. It's its a society that refuses to acknowledge your natural body. Um, so that's all at lumenpress.org. And that is um, a project and a work of my nonprofit, The Guiding Star Project. And it's one branch of what we do is, you know, education. But the other major work that we do is we open up women's health care centers across the country. And um, as I mentioned earlier, we're opening our eighth location right now in New Mexico, but we are in um, six other states as well. So that's awesome. We're trying to spread just a new norm, a new norm of women's health care across the country. And that's guidingstarproject.com. Amen. We'll put all that information in the show notes so folks can, uh, can access it and uh, access you and get in touch and hopefully support all of the great uh, work and ministry that you are, that you are leading. It's, um, it's, it's really beautiful and it's very insightful too. And I think it also helps men, frankly, understand a lot of that really beautiful, rich complexity that God has woven into, um, you know, into the, 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 into the female person that really corresponds to us in a very unique way uh, to, to be aware of and to, you know, to do our part in that as well. So I, I, I think it's awesome, you know, count on our prayers, Leah, also for your continued uh, work in this area, your success, a super compelling story. 
Um, and, uh, you know, we're, we're uh, you know, cheering on everything from the sidelines here. Thank you so much. I so appreciate you. Of course. Are you ready to play then? Wait, what? Uh, wait, what? Sure. <laughs> exactly. There you go. All right, Leah. Question number one. There's three questions here. Your home state of Minnesota has given the world a number of iconic inventions like post-it notes and target stores and, I didn't know this one, spam. But it also also has been the home to important creators and influencers who've given the world great artistic works. One of these Minnesota natives was a 20th century Catholic novelist, essayist, and short story writer. His works of fiction have been published and translated all over the world, and he's best known for his novels depicting the flamboyance and excess of the jazz age. Leah, who was he? What? Oh my gosh. Um, I can give you hints. Let me think. That is hard. Is it Prairie Home Companion? Is it something from there? No, it is not Garrison Keillor. No? No. Okay, I was wondering. You want a hint? Hmm. Yeah, I want a hint. Okay, so he was named after his distant cousin, Francis Scott Key, who wrote the lyrics for the Star Spangled Banner. I would assume his name is something like Francis Scott. <laughs> it it actually is. is. It is. Uh, but he doesn't go by Francis. Is it Francis Scott? I don't know who that is. It, it, he uses the first initial. Frank Scott? F. Scott Fitzgerald, author of The Great oh, Gatsby. Oh, Fitzgerald. The Great Gatsby. I... Oh, that makes sense. Okay, I had no idea. That a lot was, of, a, that a, was lot a hard one. My a lot goodness. of folks don't know that he's he was Catholic. In fact, he's been described as a writer who was Catholic rather than a Catholic writer. So maybe I maybe I cheated a little bit by calling him a Catholic writer. But he was indeed Catholic and wrote a bunch of books, uh, This Side of Paradise, The Beautiful and the Damned, and of course, The Great Gatsby. Yeah. All right, partial Gatsby. credit then for that one, Leah. So um, question number- No credit. No I credit. Had no idea. All right, fine. Um, question number two. <laughs> Leah, we're recording this show on September 2nd, but just yesterday, September 1st, was the feast day of an important saint in your line of work. It was the feast day of Saint Gilles, I think French, a 7th century hermit from southern France who reportedly sustained himself for several years in exile only on the milk of a deer. Although Saint Gilles seems like an unusual choice, he is in fact the patron saint of blank. Well, I was going to say lactation consultants because that would make sense. You, <laughs> but you, um, you would be correct. Go with that. Is that one. right? Yes, he is the pa- <gasps> he is the patron saint of breastfeeding and nursing mothers. Now, obviously, you know there's a lot of saints for this kind of area, and you've got you know Our Lady, of course, which is a patroness of of this as well. But he's specifically the saint for breastfeeding and nursing mothers, Saint Gilles, and his feast day was yesterday. Isn't that wild? I think I had heard his name before. You said he's French. He's French. Um, we were in France last fall. So I think I did. I think I saw something about him. And I remember noting, oh, lactation consultants. I'm a lactation consultant. So I think I knew that one, sort of. <laughs> so mark it in your calendar, September 1st. That's his day. So, and we ask for his intercession on okay. all of your work. Thank you. All right. So that's uh, one out of two. So you, you have a chance to, you're going to bat 66% for sure, because this one you're guaranteed to get right since it's an open-ended question. It's whatever you want. And it is a time machine question. Fans of this show will know that we usually have a time machine question. So here goes. Last question. Leah, you get to go forward in time to the continent of Africa in the year 3022, exactly a thousand years into the future. Before you set off on your journey and hit the flux capacitor, you take into account some of the trends that you see in that continent today, and you attempt to map what the future might look like when you arrive. 
We know there's a growing Catholic church. There's the rise of economic mobility. And there's also, sadly, border conflicts and immigration concerns. With this thinking in the background, you need to pack. Your time machine allows you to take three things with you beyond what you're wearing. What, Leah, do you take with you to Africa in 3022? Holy smokes, this is really hard. <laughs> okay. Oh my gosh. Okay. So I, what I'm seeing in my field in Africa is the increased interest and awareness of um, family planning methods Okay. Um, and the increased pressure from outside countries. Um, goodness gracious, a thousand years. What's going to have happened in a thousand years? It's a long time. I am going to bring with me. Mm-hmm. I know. I know it is. Um, I'm going to, okay, I hope I won't need it, but I'm going to bring with me my breastfeeding atlas okay. <laughs> to work just in case um, there, you know, we tend to see that the art of breastfeeding is lost over time. Oh my gosh. I have no idea. Um, That's one. A jump rope. Okay. A jump rope for physical fitness. Nice. <laughs> and a clothesline if I need it. Um, and, um, oh my gosh. Uh, binoculars to go on safari because I'm hoping and praying that the animals will all still be there and I can see them from far away. I don't know. Well, what would you bring? Well done. Oh, I, I would answer that if I was the guest, but that it's your show. So I think it's well done. Jump rope, the breastfeeding atlas and a set of binoculars. I think that's great. I mean, what else are you going to bring? Who knows what technology we have? I think that's uh, uh, I think that's very good. And of course, you get that question 100% correct. So great job, Leah. what a great what a great privilege to have you on the show leah real pleasure thank you so much we're praying for you uh for all continued blessings on on your work thank you so much for stopping by thank you deacon charlie god bless you and if you're listening to our voice that means it's time to subscribe to this show to share this particular episode with that person that came to mind as you were hearing it because that's the one who needs to listen to it next please do that and we'll see you again next time on living the call